Welcome to Noble Warrior. My name is CK Lin. This is a place where I interview other entrepreneurs about their journey from entrepreneur to commander to king. We'll deconstruct the mindset, mental models, actionable tactics, so that you can go out to build and navigate your own journey and create more impact and fulfillment that you want. In the last few weeks, I've been really contemplating and meditating on what is the mission, what is the brand of Noble Warrior. I've been thinking about the hundred of different entrepreneurs that I have interviewed over the last two years. I've been gathering and grappling and, and, and reflecting on all of the reviews, the guest posts, the conversation that I've had since. And of all of the different things that I have, I, I've identified some common denominators among all of these extraordinary people. And there are three archetypes of all of the guests, all of the listeners, all of the people that do reviews, all of the people that are connected with me, my own story, there are three archetypes that we all go through. The first is the warrior. The warriors want to make a name for themselves. They're all about optimizing, biohacking, flow hacking their way so they can really hone in on their superpower to really make that dent in the universe. And there are the commanders. The commanders are the managers, the team leaders, the visionaries who people rely on to help set the vision and get things done. And these people want to actually increase the overall throughput of their team. They're looking to have better communication, better leadership, better social skills as a way to motivate the team to really go after that moonshot idea. And then there are the kings and the queens. These are people who have achieved some level of mastery. They probably have exited from the previous organizations. And this time around, after learning the lesson, they want to focus on wholeness. They want to focus on impact. And they want to focus on fulfillment. They want to build the next organization that's going to help them amplify the kind of impact they really want to make in the world. So if you're listening to this, I mean, curious to know which one are you? Are you a warrior? Are you a commander? Or are you a king or a queen? I'd love to hear that. Now, I want to introduce my next guest. My next guest is the podcaster of Life is a Festival. He's the VP of Communication of Maya Health, a psychedelics medicine software company. Forbes Midas List top tech investor Tim Chang calls my guest one of the best community builders in Silicon Valley. Now, here are a few things that we talked about the journey of vulnerability that led him to a moment of naked courage on stage at Burning Man. We talked about using loneliness to uncover life's richest treasures. We talked about level up his experiences or your experiences by beating up the game of life's final bosses. We talked about the airhead candies, how it was a gateway drug to his entrepreneurial journey. We talked about love as a currency in or a number of currencies that you didn't even know you spent. We talked about beating loneliness and raising self-esteem through the architecture of community. 
We talked about the journey of becoming the oracle of festivals and transcendent experiences. And finally, we talked about harnessing the genius of others to create your own abundance. So please enjoy my conversation with Eamon Armstrong, the host of Life is a Festival. Eamon, let me just jump right into the first time when I met you. It was 2018, Burning Man, Camp Mystic. You gave a talk at the Love Temple. Do you re remember what the talk was? Do you remember that at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We called it the Penis and Vagina Dialogues. And it was one of the last men's work talks that I gave. But me and my friend Elana Mehta had a conversation about the things that men and women have trouble talking about. And we did most of that conversation naked. So right away, I said to myself, wow, this guy's courageous, ballsy, like literally. So yes, literally, yeah. Ballsy. So for someone who's watching you and say, wow, that was really courageous. Can you sh walk us through a little bit of your journey of really leaning to this desire to be more and more open, more and more vulnerable? Yeah. Wow. So I feel like acts that appear courageous to others are often incremental parts of broader trajectories. Not that it's necessarily incremental to do a talk naked. It's the first talk I've ever done naked. But when I think about that question, God, you started me. You didn't start me on a softball. <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, how did you have the courage to get naked to give a talk at Burning Man? I have to really take a minute with that. So I've always been a performer, so that helps. I've spent a lot of time on the stage. So it wasn't that this was like, I had the pub the fear of public speaking. People say, imagine everyone naked. And I was just like, fuck it, I'll be naked. Oh, can I swear on this or should I not? Go for it. Okay, cool. I don't know what, you know, I don't know what the rules are. Um, yeah, I think that... Courage is an interesting thing too, because it, courage it means different things for different people. And actually 10 years at Burning Man, fair amount of time being naked in unusual places and giving a lot of talks. I wouldn't say that that's necessarily where my courage is, where I need the most courage, for example. I think that jumping out of a plane would be something that would be enormously terrifying for me. I have a fear of heights, so it'd be a lot harder. Your question was, where did, can you ask your question again? Because I feel of like course. I've meandered a little of bit. Of course. Your brand is being open and vulnerable. And you've been on this path for a long time. When I saw you, it was very shocking. I was like, wow, this is very courageous. So I was wondering if you can walk us back on the journey of this path of being more and more vulnerable. Okay. Was, was there an, an inciting incident when you were younger and you said, no longer would I hold myself down and withhold. I'm going to be more and more vulnerable is essentially what I was uh, going for. Okay, here we go. I, I, do you know Enneagrams? Are you into Enneagrams? I know of it. I don't know it familiar enough to have an intelligent conversation. But, but okay, I'm so, happy to hear whatever you have to say. Yeah, so the, Enne the Enneagram is a personality type. There's nine personality types. And for the sake of this conversation, my Enneagram type is three with a four wing. What that means is that 
I identify, according to this particular personality type metric, as the successful achiever. So it's very important for me to perform and to receive external validation. And I have a four wing, which means I'm an individualist. Now, I don't think that these things are absolutely true, but they're an interesting way of exploring yourself, like a Myers-Briggs test or something like that. I've always wanted external validation, and I've always also at the same time wanted to be an individual and be special. For a lot of my life, I thought that the way to be loved was to figure out what everyone wanted and then be that, and then everyone would love me. And of course, that's a very hollow path to travel on because eventually you realize that if people do love you at all, they're loving the mask that you created, and none of that love is actually penetrating at all. So it's uh, very lonely. And I was on that track for a lot of my life of like, how do I like figure out what you want? And then you'll like me or what do pretty girls, I'll be that. Or like, how do I try to hide this part of myself that I don't think people would like? And there was a time in my life when that kind of shifted. And I realized that I wanted to be loved for who I was. And that was the real way to love, but I was still very, and still am very motivated by external validation. So it flipped from not just, oh, I'm just going to be me and who cares, but I'm going to be me, but I still want people to like me. And so that's been a path that I've been on for a long time. And I'm trying, I'm working with that and trying to, trying to be more just self-resourced and self-validated. But so I found that over time that people actually really liked my vulnerability and liked, I feel like I'm a pretty unique dude with pretty unique perspectives. And when I moved from Los Angeles to San Francisco, and this was about, you know, 13 years ago or something. So San Francisco was still pretty weird then. It hadn't completely become a tech mecca. But people liked the weird and people liked the vulnerable. And I found that I could expose these parts of myself and people would uh, respond positively. So I got the opportunity of being more authentically me, but also getting the validation that I wanted. And it's a tricky thing because... There's stuff about that that's really good and really beautiful. And I got, I was able to explore more of myself, but it was still very tied to external validation and still in a certain sense, performative. And I actually did a talk about two years ago about performative vulnerability. So we can get more into that. I'm also kind of warming up at the moment. So I, I don't feel particularly vulnerable myself right now. But I guess to answer your question, the journey of, vulnerability as courage for me has actually been tied into external validation. And as I've become more vulnerable, I've actually gotten the positive reinforcement of my peers. So it's like you, it's like, oh, that guy's courageous. Not just that's a weird dude who got naked and talked about his dick in public. Like that guy's courageous. And so I'm like, oh, I'm courageous. I'll be more that way. And now the work that I'm doing right now, which I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk about today is how to completely decouple my self-esteem from the response of others and actually be completely self-validated. And I just literally two hours ago got back from an ashram in the Portuguese countryside where I was working on this very task. So yeah, it's very much intertwined with my whole life journey is vulnerability, external validation, seeking authenticity. But yeah, it's, and it's also part of the brand too. So it's, it's all into the paradox. There. Yeah. In my, one of the questions that my a lot of my entrepreneurial friends ask me, uh, a lot of my 
very practical friends ask me like, CK, why do you like to philosophize so much? Why do you like to talk about the esoteric so much? And I didn't really quite have an answer other than I like it because I like it. But then I stumbled upon and I, I reread the first sentence of the Tao Te Ching. It says, mm -hmm. if you can describe the Tao, then it's not the eternal Tao. And it's so accurate because if you can precisely describe this thing, truth, whatever it is, then that, that's not it because truth cannot be described one angle. But what truth may emerge is in the exploration of it. It's in the in-between moments of it and then mm -hmm. going back and forth. In my mind, for what, reflecting what you just said, our ego wants validation no matter what. We are a social animal, our survival dependent on it. So we want to know where we stand in the, in the social hierarchy of things. But at the same time, our higher self, my point of view, not the truth, is seeking truth. So in exploring this paradox in between, then truth uh, emerges from the, is the yin and the yang. So, yeah, it's you're just pointing at a thing. You can never actually describe the thing. I'm, I'm into that. I'm into the sort of like ineffable, ineffable quality of all things. And I, I like, I like that line that the, uh, the Tao that can be described is not the true Tao. I'm pretty into Taoism for that reason. So yeah, I, I agree with you that there's a sort of liminal space and that getting comfortable with the groundlessness of things and the impreciseness of language and that sort of thing is actually very helpful because it gives you a lot more options, a lot more space to move. So you just came back from ashram. I have to ask, what, what did you discover? What was meaningful for you? Or was it not? What was the experience? Anything you want, you want to share with me and my audience, what, what you discover? Ah, okay. So something that I have found, because I do a lot of these like peak transformative experiences. And what often happens is you have an experience. It's actually, this is really in line with what you were just saying. When you start talking about it, you pin it to a story. And when you pin it to a story, it creates some separation between you and that experience. And the experience is, it doesn't just end when you leave the container, whether that's like a plant medicine thing or a Vipassana or an ashram or whatever it is, the experience, because you're on a continuum. And so there's an unfolding that is continuing to occur. So if I now tell you this happened and that happened, and this is what is now going to happen, and this is what I learned, and this is what I'm taking with it, I may potentially rob myself of something deeper and richer. So let me see if there's a way that I can describe my experience of going to this ashram that isn't the need to pin it down to a story. So here we go. I am in a season of deep loneliness. And I am learning to go through this loneliness and find treasure and find the treasure of a deeper strength, the treasure of peace within, the, there's treasure to be found. And I'm very clear on the fact that I need to go through loneliness. And it's also extraordinarily hard to do. I ended a very important relationship about four months ago and I miss this person terribly. And I'm also being confronted with this incredible loneliness that has actually been with me through my whole life and was actually with me during the relationship too. But now it's 
right up in my face. And do you know the poet Hafiz? Mm -hmm. So Hafiz is my favorite poet. And my favorite poem by Hafiz concerns this matter of loneliness. And he says, don't surrender your loneliness so quick. Let mm -hmm. it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can. Something is missing in my heart tonight. Has my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, I need for God absolute. So the reason that I went to this ashram was because I was feeling a maelstrom of grasping needy energy. And I was a bit of a pill to be around for that reason. I was in the throes of not just the pain of parting, but also just the thrashing about of the ego and identity that happens after a breakup and in that sort of liminal space of who am I now and who can I be? And I really believe that they're the most potent growth that can happen in that space is staying with it. You gotta stay with it. You wanna grab on, you wanna grab onto a new relationship. You wanna grab onto experiences. And I was feeling that I was at a bit of a fever pitch in my grasping. And I had attended an event at the Ramdas Guru Ashram outside of Sintra in the Portuguese countryside. And so I was, I'd been to this ashram. And I had a friend, a new friend, a fellow named Zach that I met out here who had spent a week there. And he said, if you want good medicine, go to the ashram. And I'd never been to an ashram before. And of course, as a connoisseur of transformative experiences, wow, what a perfect timing. Here I am full of all the raw material for transformation with the perfect uh, container in which to do that just 40 minutes away. And I went as a gesture of not surrendering my loneliness. And albeit an ashram is a community environment, but you're also, you're in a very specific container. You're, you lose a lot of the ability to run away in various forms. And for most of the experience, I had to do some work, but for most of the experience, I was shut off of technology and I was you know, on a strict vegan diet and, and these sorts of things. And so I went to feel and be in a healing container with a lot of service. Seva is the name for the, the, the process of service at many ashrams, certainly this ashram. And it was a Sikh ashram. So I learned about Sikhism, which I did not know anything about. And also practiced kundalini yoga at 5.30 every morning. And so it was an opportunity for me to really feel this really intense longing and to go deeper. And as I mentioned a moment ago, the experience is ongoing. Like any kind of plant medicine experience or any sort of festival or whatever it is, you come home thinking, oh, I'm transformed. I learned the thing. And of course, that's never the case. You get a glimpse of it, and then it's up to you to do the work to integrate it into your life, which essentially is, that's what Life is a Festival, the podcast is about, is how do we integrate these experiences into our lives, be it a festival, a ceremony, whatever it is. And so I am under no illusions that I am now free of the sort of grasping energy, although it abated quite considerably at the ashram itself. But I'm in a season of loneliness, and my hope is is that if I'm able to sit in the desert long enough 
And by the desert, what I mean is not without people altogether, but without grabbing on to some form of partnership that validates and reflects me back to myself. If I'm able to sit in the desert long enough, I believe that the desert will bloom. And I believe this because these are the words of someone far wiser than I, a thinker Anthony DeMello, from his book, The Way to Love, or maybe it was awareness, but one of his books he talks about sitting in the desert until it begins to bloom. So to answer your question, why did I go to the ashram and where, what did I get out of it? I went to the ashram to have a container in which to feel deep, grasping, clinging loneliness and to develop my spiritual DNA to be able to meet that in a more self-possessed way. It is one of many experiences that I've had over these past few months and will continue to have that's part of strengthening a kind of interior spiritual muscle that I believe will bear a treasure far richer than perhaps any that I have so far discovered in my life. Now, that's we'll see, but it's my hope. What a beautiful metaphor. Your example has been quite illustrative of what a lot of people may be feeling right now during COVID, economics, business, and everything, right? This is a, a time of difficulty or challenge or adversity for them. And as in any adversity, economic, relationship, plant medicine, ayahuasca, all these things, it reveals some a part of who we are. So leaning to that discomfort allows us to see the truth of who we are. And as you said earlier, beautifully, uh, I call it a uh, spiritual spine. You're developing that spiritual spine. So you know who you are so that you can come out stronger and just say, hey, here's who I am. Eamon Armstrong, CK Lin, whoever. And then just say, here's me naked. Yeah, yeah there's a. There's a great line from Ram Das, and this is the American Ram Das. The, the ashram that I was at was a, a Sikh guru named Ram Das, so different people. But the American Ram Das has a great line about loss, and he says that when going through a terrible loss, we panic and are filled with fear because we are afraid that we are really afraid that we'll die. And it's true, actually, it's true. The part of us that cannot bear that loss that trauma, that shock, whatever, that the part of us that cannot bear it does die. And the part of us that, that can bear it is what remains. And in a sense, I feel like when we go through some of these sort of arduous experiences that we are terrified about and we feel we cannot possibly get through, there is a part of us that can't get through it. And that part of us doesn't get through it. And so when I think about building the spiritual muscle, there's a more childish aspect of myself. It's, I don't want to, I just want to collapse. I want someone to do it for me. Like uh, that thing, that part. And I say that part isn't, doesn't deserve love and compassion and radical self-acceptance, certainly. But the, there's something that happens when that grabbing can't grab anything and gives up. And I'm not there yet, but the ashram and some other experiences I've had over the past 
you know, couple of months have been part of trying to surrender this grasping aspect of myself and yeah, have that spiritual spine erect as you have so aptly described. Do you think that when you say I'm not quite there yet, do you think that it will ever go away? Because from my point of view, right, that impulse, that chatter, it will always be there. Now it's my level of comfort in being with from the whisper to the chatter to the loudness to the screaming of that. And then if I have that spiritual spine or that capacity to hear with that and be with that and just be okay with it, accept it. And that's my level of development there. I'm curious to know your point of view. Yeah. So yeah, nothing, no parts of us go away. We just develop a more sophisticated relationship to them as we mature. But when you think about have you gotten have you gotten a shot recently? Like a needle shot? Yeah. No. Okay. So I got a shot recently. I can't mm. remember what it was for. But this person stuck a needle in my arm and I didn't even I didn't have a moment where I was afraid. I didn't have a moment where I even cared. I was just like, "Oh, now this now this happened." And so there was a part of myself when I was very young that would have that was already freaking out. That part, there is no part of me that freaks out about getting a shot anymore. You know what I mean? There's a part of me that is childish and freaks out about certain things, but I've grown past being afraid of that particular thing. So I think it does shift. There is always, there are always wounded parts of us. There are always scared parts of us. They come up at different times for different purposes, certainly. I don't mm. think that we rid ourselves of anything. And I think that it might be best for us to rid ourselves of the notion that we can rid ourselves of things. At the same time, with endurance, there is the part of us that can't endure it, can't endure it. And I feel falls away with each difficult experience we go through. Like a video game where you beat a boss and then you always know the code, you always know the moves to beat that boss. And so you get on the next level and instead of the boss at the end of the level, you get a couple of those those same characters pop up, but now you know how to deal with them. So you get a new boss at the end of the level. And as you progress, you have these difficulties to deal with. Yeah. Let's actually switch gear a little bit because you are a man of many talents. You're a comedian, you're a performer, you are a podcast host, you are a community builder. There's many different roles that you play throughout your life. And most recently you started Life is a podcast. Oh, sorry, Life is a festival podcast, right? So that's your newest entrepreneurial journey. Could you share with us a little bit about how you, one, why did you start that entrepreneurial journey? Is, is that your first, by the way? I love that you call it an entrepreneurial journey because I think that's a wonderful th way to think about it. And I totally act like it's an entrepreneurial venture, but I have just never used that word. I, I see, I'm, I'm one of those people where I was like, I'm an artist, I'm not an entrepreneur, but it's totally bullshit because I am an entrepreneur and that's, it's a, it's such a limiting frame. And I think I actually held myself back a lot when I was younger by being like, no, it's not about the money. I'm not like a money guy. I'm not into, I'm not, it's not business, whatever. It's just me, this band or this, this other thing. You asked if it was my first entrepreneurial venture. I would say that my first 
real venture was a band that uh, that I it was three of us and Graham McLeod, Emily Haltom, and myself back in San Francisco in my mid twenties. We created a band called I Can Dress Myself, and we threw mushroom tea parties on Haight Street, and we threw these elaborate costume parties, and we built a beautiful community around it, and then we built a Burning Man camp out from that community, and and so I would say that my first entrepreneurial venture was probably the band I Can Dress Myself, but also the community. We called ourselves selves the funky ones and then our burning man camp elephant bird camp and they were all sorts of parts of the of the same thing but i definitely approached that very much like an entrepreneur and also abandoned it when its time was over which i think is also an entrepreneurial thing to an, an awareness of when the resources going in aren't worth what you're getting out and you have to let things go so i'd say that was the first yeah that sort of thing i did i sold drugs in in high school like just a little bit, like a little bit of weed. So then maybe that's like entrepreneurial, but I think I was just like trying to be cool. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I, I so appreciate you're just so open about everything. That's awesome. I love it. So, I don't think anyone cares that I sold weed in high school at this point. I think that people would be like, oh, yeah, we got bigger fish to fry, buddy. There you go. There you go. Um, I think you made a comment about how a lot of artists don't see themselves as a, as entrepreneurs, but in my mind, being an artist is one of the most entrepreneurial thing that one could do. Cause you literally sharing who you are, you you the ideas, your creation to the world, and then you're sharing it in a very competitive space. So super entrepreneurial from my point of view, anyway, making a brand, making your creation, finding an audience, making a niche, have a relationship with your fans, with the audience. That's what entrepreneur is. You're solving a problem for them, all of it. It's all how you think about it. And, and I have to go back to your earlier question because I just remembered, I actually have an entrepreneurial venture from way earlier. Mm. When I was in middle school, my mom would buy like the bulk pack of like airhead candies. And then I would go to school and I would sell the individual airheads from the bulk box that she got at Costco. And that was my first entrepreneurial venture. So I just want to, I, I don't, the thing is, I don't think about them as entrepreneurial ventures. I just think of them as like fun little projects. And, and I, I think that's something that we get into with, so you're asking the question about, artists not thinking of themselves as entrepreneurs. And I've actually coached a lot of artists. I do pro bono coaching. I don't charge for coaching also because of my relationship with money. God, money, it's such an interesting thing. But a lot of times with artists is that they don't know how to value themselves. And when you present yourself to someone without being able to value your work, they don't know how to value it either because a lot of the value that's created is in the conversation and collaboration about it. It's sort of, oh, I don't know how uh, would you, uh, I, I don't, do you want to pay for this or what? It's, it doesn't instill a lot of confidence. So I think for a lot of artists, there's, I'm not like a money person. I'm not like a business person. I don't have those skills. And there's all that sort of limiting beliefs that are reinforced. And as someone smarter than me once said, if you fight for your limitations, you get to keep them, mm. which I think is a wonderful line. I can't remember who that's attributed to. But yeah, I, I think that, we would be so much more liberated in our 
all of our ventures if we didn't create barriers for ourselves. Literally at the ashram today, a woman was talking to me about spiritual coaching and she was asking me about how to get the word out. And I was like, you, you have to market it. And she's like, but it's like a spiritual thing. I don't want it to seem like I'm selling something. It's like you are selling something. You're selling the service. So you'd have to market it because otherwise, how are people going to know about it? And she's like, yeah, but it just, it doesn't seem like spiritual for me. I was like, it doesn't matter if it feels spiritual or not. It's like, either you can do it because you're just doing it and then do it as much as people happen to ask you about it or, or you can put yourself out there and you can promote it in some way. It doesn't mean you necessarily have to like take out ads on Facebook about it, but you do have to figure out strategies with which to promote yourself. And yeah, it's an interesting edge. And I think that for me, had I thought about myself in the terms of entrepreneur younger, I probably would have, I don't know, you know what? Never mind. Actually, I love my life. I don't have any, doesn't matter what would have been. I'm very happy with where I am now. But I, I think that I, I feel that life as a festival is an entrepreneurial venture for sure. Even though it's the only money I've ever made from it is when Spotify paid me to do live shows at their uh, holiday parties, which was dope. I've never made any money from that podcast, but it's definitely, I pursue it like an entrepreneurial venture. It's still, it's not finished yet. So you don't have the finished story yet. It's still in development and it's still evolving. And then you're figuring out your monetization model. In my mind, the easiest way, the simplest way, the most reductive way to think about this whole idea of love, money, spirituality, all of it is just treat everything as love. So I'm paying you, I'm paying you. One currency is money, one currency is attention, one currency is respect, one currency may be acknowledgement, testimonials, all of it. So it's all just different currency of love going back and forth. So if I think of it that way, it simplifies things for me. It's no longer is it, oh, money is dirty, love is better, spirituality is even better. So it's just different currencies. Yeah, I had a great, I did a great podcast with Tim Chang about this. Do you know Tim Chang? So he's a pretty successful venture capitalist. And I don't, I don't think he would want me to say he's a successful venture capitalist as the primary way I identify him. He would probably want me to say that he is like a heart-centered innovator brilliant person, which is what I think of him. But it's funny in the context of this, I'm like, he's on the side of he's a venture capitalist. And I'm so he taught me to be more like it. It's so funny how we divide up the world. But I did a podcast with Tim about money and about my podcast and that sort of thing. And at that time, I was looking for work. And life is a festival wasn't ready to be monetized. And it did turn out that life is a festival led to the work that I do with Maya because I have a lot of background in community building, the, the kind of direct translation of the Life is a Festival podcast into a psychedelic therapy podcast made a lot of sense for my work, working with a psychedelic medicine software company. Tim has a very positive outlook on everything. He's an enormously positive, positive man. And he just helped me understand that I was rejecting money and that I was looking at I was looking at my work as in a certain category when it really could it could make a lot of money. And eventually, maybe it will. 
Yeah. And that would be, and, and, and I think that making money is actually pretty great if you do it in the right way, because if you make money, you hire a team, you do more stuff, you get, get more people paid, get more opportunities. I, I, I don't think that we all need to like make massive tech companies, but if you've got something great and the world is benefiting from it, why not put the time and energy behind it and the resources to get it to more people? And we live in a capitalist context. And so that is the way that you do that is by creating resources and then using those resources to expand. So I'd like to do that with Life is a Festival more so. Yeah. Awesome, man. Yes. Life is a Festival produced a lot of value. I actually listened to the podcast. And one thing that stuck up for me is you introduced yourself a certain way and Ting Chang introduced yourself a certain way. And that was like, wow, because he has a really high listening of you and what you were creating. Yeah, no, I remember that now. Yeah, he, he pitched me on my podcast as... Mm -hmm. He said something like he's one of the most expert community builders I've ever met. And I was like, oh, damn, that's awfully sweet of you. I love community building. It's a weird, it's a weird term, community building, because you're not really building anything. You're more just like facilitating connections between people and associating those connections with a brand or a entity that then benefits from the stewardship of those connections and those connections benefit from that stewardship. So it's not, you're not building the community so much as you're like, building the architecture that supports it. But I love doing that. Actually, if you don't mind, because you just pushed out a, a bunch of big words, can you unpack what you just said in a little bit more? So someone, a younger version of CK, a younger version of Amen, 10 years ago, five years ago, it was like, wow, Amen is one of the, the most expert community builders out there. And I want to learn how to build community. How would you unpack that for the younger version of CK and Amen? Oh yeah. Okay. So the younger version of Eamon felt very lonely at, coming out of college. Actually, this loneliness thread is an interesting part of this conversation. Side note, as a podcaster, I tend to look for threads in conversations mm -hmm. for my guests. I'll watch what they're doing and then I'll pull them, I'll pull them back to threads that I see emerging. And so it's funny looking at myself as a guest, I'm like, oh man, there's like a loneliness thing you're talking about. I left college and I felt so lonely. People just moved. I was in LA and a bunch of people moved and I went through a breakup and I, and college has a certain architecture for community. And when I, I say like a traditional residence based for your school, the architecture is the actual physical campus itself. And then all the associated organizations and, and the surrounding places where people are living you're in a physical community. And when we leave college in our sort of modern atomized world, where we're not in a traditional village setting, where we, we go through an experience, and we return to a village or a community, you, you often are on your own. You're staying where that college was. Maybe you're going back home, but everybody's moved or you're moving to some other city to take a job. And what I found and many people find is that who are your friends? Your friends happen to be people you work with or you date someone and they become your whole world. So there needs to be an architecture for community to happen. There needs to be a way that bonds are strengthened and a way that people understand themselves associated with community. So now I speak to younger Eamon who came out of 
college feeling totally lonely. So check it out, Younger Amen. Not only is it possible to actually have the community that you wanted, but you yourself can actually facilitate it, which is gonna put you right at the center of it. And here we go with the loneliness thing. It's like, why am I community building? Because I'm lonely. So I create, put myself at the center of people. You yourself can create community. And the way that you do so is by helping people strengthen bonds with each other. And the best way to help people to strengthen bonds with each other is to give people cool things to do and to elevate them in the eyes of each other so that they associate with each other's kind of self-esteem or esteem. So like for Fest 300, for example, I I was the, you know, first the community manager, ultimately culture, sorry, creative director of uh, a website called Fest 300, which was a guide to the world's best festivals. And essentially my concept for that was it was a website with an online magazine. And my concept was basically like, we really need to make this a community. We need to be the stewards of the global festival community. So we're the ones who say, this is an amazing festival. We're also the ones who the best photographers are and hire them. We're the ones who know what people need and help them get it. And in a sense, what I was doing was using the website to create a concept of a global festival community and then help people help each other, which strengthened the bonds of their connection, which made it all feel like a global community. And then who knew best about the global community? The magazine that I was leading the content for. And back to younger Eamon coming out of college, you're n it's hard to make friends. It's hard to keep reaching out and keep calling people and be like, hey, do you want to hang out today? Do you want to hang out today? We're, we want to be in tribes naturally. We don't want to be like constantly going and creating bonds. We want to be in environments where bonds can actually crystallize. Bo our bonds can strengthen in the context of shared experience. So create the context of shared experience. It's also why I love festivals. It's a context of shared experience where we can, where we can create deeper bonds with each other. It's why I like a lot of the experiences because it's about connection, strengthening bonds, feeling this association, and then feeling held in community. So what I heard is it stemmed from your desire, your feeling of loneliness, and you wanted to then just go out and build a, a shared experience to help other people strengthen bonds with each other. And th there is actually a spiritual principle inside of that. The, the adage goes, you give what you want most, right? So you were feeling lonely, and then you then created cool experiences to help other people feeling less lonely. And therefore you feel less lonely yourself. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think that's a very accurate recap. And, and I think that I like that there's an Eckhart Tolle line. That's the reverse of that, which is what you think the world is withholding from you. You are withholding from the world. Mm. Just the inverse of that. So yeah, what you, are lacking, you end up giving. And I think that's been very true for me is that I've had an incredible loneliness inside me my whole life. And so I try to connect people with each other. And yeah, actually, 
what's funny is I actually haven't really thought about this deeply this way. Like I know it, but I haven't really, there's a lot of like things clicking coming out of the ashram and being like, what am I going to do right now? Where am I, where do I want to be? Where do I want to live? And so it's actually quite a potent time to be having this public conversation. Yeah. Awesome. What an opportunity. So going a little bit deeper then you like cool experiences like festivals. So therefore, and then peak experiences and transformational experiences. And therefore you create cool experiences for other people to come around who are into the same thing as well. Is that accurate? Uh, actually, the, I, I created the experiences back when I had the funky dance band and the Burning Man camp. And I actually found that creating the experiences was the juice wasn't as worth the squeeze as it was to, to actually curate them. If I am a node in many communities, then I get much more access to all sorts of things rather than doing one thing that may on its own fail. So my funky dance band and my cool parties were like really cool, but got to a point where I wasn't really going anywhere and I had to start from scratch. Then the next thing that I did, the website was more about curating all the other experiences and being part of all of them and going and finding them and reviewing them. And I'm at a place right now where I'm totally not into event production. I love event production. I love event producers. I love supporting them, but I am not, I am not a king in that context. I am yeah. more an, an, an oracle. I am more a, a I, 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 I bring everything together. I don't produce it myself. Yeah, I got you. Event production uh, experiences creation. It's not necessarily your zone of genius or it's not something that you want to do. So you, so now you're a curator of experiences. How would you define curator? It's really just sharing. I really just go find the things I love and then I share them. And that's evolved from a website that was a guide to the world's best festivals, where we had an annual list of 300 festivals and said, this is good. This is, this makes the list. This doesn't to now with life as a festival. It's more like I'm going through a challenge in my life. And so life has burped up an, an ashram for me to go to. So I'm going to go have that experience and then do a podcast with the Sikh Kundalini master founder of the ashram that I then share with my audience. And then if they're having a crisis experience, they might think, oh, maybe I will go do the ashram thing. So it's less, now it's less curating in the sense of this is, I suggest this, but not this, this is cool, but that's not. And now it's more, I just had this hard thing and I'm choosing this and here I would recommend it for this reason, but doing it a little bit more in a sort of like longer narrative arc rather than like you could have this or that you could have this. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. The, the more of the, the, the narrative, the story format versus pro con checklist format, I think. Yeah, I got that. Yeah, similar, right? Uh, Noble Warrior, I talked to really interesting people, help them pull out some of the important bits, the tools, the internal dialogue inside their mind, and also share actionable tactics with people to try on if they're in similar situations or if they really resonate energetically to the, the guest. So then we can you know, help people basically move things forward. 
Yeah, I like that. It's a, a good lot. gig. Yeah. Uh, so actually, talk talk about the joy of being a podcaster. By the way, I'm curious to know, like, what from your perspective is the most counterintuitive joy of uh, and benefit of being a podcaster, and what is the most counterintuitive costs of being a podcaster? I don't know. If counterintuitive is precisely the word for this. Maybe it is, but. Being a podcaster makes you a more interested person. So I think a lot of people would like to be a more interesting person, but it's actually more valuable to be a more interested person. And I love talking about myself. I love talking about my journeys, my adventures. And I went to the, did the medicine. I did the meditation. I did the thing. Aren't I so great? But what I found with the podcast is the podcast doesn't work that way. You can't get on a podcast and talk about how awesome you are because it's super boring. The whole point of the podcast is to make your guests look amazing. And so for me, I got into podcasting. I was going to write a book uh, about my adventures and the learnings that I'd accrued. And I launched the podcast as a way of galvanizing my existing audience from, from Fest 300, from my writing, from some of my public speaking, to like coalesce that audience to then prepare them to offer this book for them. So I started the podcast as potentially part of this book thing, realized that I had no interest in writing the book and that writing the book was super lonely and super self-involved. And basically every time I wanted to write the book, I had to sit down and try to make something that was perfect. Mm. But the podcast can't be perfect because it has to come out every week. Mm. So the podcast is by its very nature iterative mm. and it's not about me mm. and it is with other people. So all of these qualities made it so much more fun and so much easier to do. If you got entrepreneurs listening, okay, dear entrepreneur listening, find something iterative. Just get do something that you can iterate on. When you have that big, perfect thing, you're trying to make the perfect book, you're trying to make the perfect course offering, whatever it is, that is a prison. Trying to make a perfect thing is an awful prison. Better to find something that you can iterate over time and you can get something out, get feedback, tweak it, get feedback, tweak it. So my podcast is every single week I record and every single week I painstakingly listen and edit very closely and just go through all of these different kinds of you know, processes of what is this, what is that? And then I put it out in the world and then I have a Facebook group, Life is a Festival Facebook group where people will respond. Sometimes people reach out to me on Instagram. So I'm like in conversation with, with my audience. I actually, I'm planning to put together, I, I think I have enough of an engaged audience where people actually really value the show and value me for hosting it, that, I'm, that they would be willing to do a survey. So I'm actually going to be creating a survey to get more information about what people like and what they don't like. So it's iterative and the actual process of making it better is an ongoing process that I'm doing with others. If I had to sit by myself with a blank page on a computer and try to create something perfect, ugh, horrible, horrible, horrible. I'm so happy I'm not trying to do that right now. I was so miserable when I was trying to do that. And so that may be, I don't know if it's counterintuitive, but that's a, an enormous benefit. And then just the idea of focusing on the other is actually makes me, well, this is counterintuitive. Focusing on other people actually makes me look better, which is really cool. Like I always thought you need to have a brilliant idea, you get up on stage and you'll share your brilliant idea and everyone will be like, oh, this person's so brilliant, great idea. Actually, 
when you interview people and you're extremely interested and you're having a really good time, they can deliver all the brilliant ideas. You don't have to have any brilliant ideas and you'll still look amazing. And you'll, you're, I'm building Life as a Festival as a brand entirely on knowledge of the people who come on my show. Of course, my story and my personality is interwoven in that, but I don't have to be smart. I don't have to be right. I don't have to, I don't have to be anything. I just have to be interested. Counterintuitive cost of doing a podcast. I don't think I am ever going to really make money off the podcast itself. I just think the advertising model on podcasts just doesn't really work. You need to have so you, have, you need to have such a huge audience. You need to be like a Tim Ferriss. Like I, I, I don't. It's counterintuitive cost is that it's a lot of work for not a lot of money. That being said, and this gets into a bit of the conversation about entrepreneurship, is that I think it. I think the key is to be an to have an entrepreneurial mindset but not have a mindset of the focus on bottom line and money because not, you don't reject money. Money is good because it helps. Money is something that helps you build your thing. But if the goal of the thing is to make money, I just, if the goal of your podcast is to make money, don't do a podcast, go do something else. But if the goal of your podcast is to create abundance in your life, money will come in all sorts of different ways. And in my case, like life is a festival has strengthened my network. Like I have a brand, people are aware of me. And then it led to my work with Maya, which does pay me. And now I'm doing a podcast for, for Maya, the psychedelic therapy podcast, and I'm getting paid well to, to do because I'm on a VP salary for doing the podcast and some other things. So it actually turned into a career doing something that I love. Maybe someday life as a festival will turn into a TV show or turn into something else. And it'll, there'll be some sort of watershed moment of a financial remuneration, but to your earlier point about love and money and spirituality and all of these things, this all being different forms of love, I think the key is to cultivate abundance in your life. And that abundance may have the name of money, but it may also be many other things. And for me, it's a lot of other things. Okay, let's geek out a little bit about more on the expertise of being a great host. So personally, for me, I look for... Graham Norton, he's a master interviewer. Uh, Charlie Rose, master interviewer. Joe Rogan, obviously, master interviewer. And I look at their craft of actually how to insert themselves very gracefully versus someone else who would just monopolize the conversation and start to preach to the guest. So I'm curious to know, I think your unique angle you had said something like, I didn't ever have to do anything. I, I think that's really being really humble, by the way, because you have a unique way to really you know, dance in that conversation and tease out some of the, the gems. You, know, you give them the space, you amp them up so that they can tell the best story. So share with us a little bit about the mechanics, how you get the most by being interested. Because you're not just sitting there and staring at them doing nothing. You're doing something get the most. So share with us a little bit about the, the mental process of how you do that. Okay. So just to, to clarify, I definitely don't do nothing, but I'm like, I'm not required to be, to have the idea. I don't need to come to the table and know post Taoist theory. I don't need that. 
but I do work very hard at being a good podcaster. And what for me, what it comes down to bottom line is shared vulnerability. And actually before coronavirus, I never did any, I, I almost did no remote podcasts because it's a lot harder to drop into that shared vulnerability over a screen. I've gotten better at it, but it's, a lot, it's, it's easier in person. My goal as a host is to give enough without making it about myself that my guest feels safe giving of themselves. And so my guests always get final cut on the content. So bottom line, nothing gets published without my guests explicit yes on it. I've done, I did the two live episodes at Spotify, but aside from that, I don't do anything live. I try to create a situation of intimacy and how do you guys, do that? what's the situation of intimacy? What's yeah. That? So what guides my philosophy of my podcast comes from a book called finite and infinite games. Have you heard of this book? Quite I've a popular heard. book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's quite a popular book. So briefly, the book essentially says that you can live your life in one of two ways. You can live as if you're playing a finite game or a series of finite games, or as if you're playing infinite games, which really comes down to basically one infinite game. A finite game is played to win. An infinite game is played to play more games. And the whole book breaks down all of life into like how to look at things as, as finite, as infinite versus finite games. And of course, the goal is to live your life as, a, as an infinite game where you just start playing, inviting more players and playing more games. And there's a line about that, about infinite players. And James Kars, who wrote that book, writes, infinite players play in complete openness. It's not openness as in candor, but openness as in vulnerability. It's not about revealing a fixed self that has always been, but about exploring and co-creating a dynamic self that is yet to be. When I talk about vulnerability and intimacy and authenticity and these kinds of things, I'm actually not looking at it from the perspective that someone has a secret that I want them to reveal to me and my audience. What I feel like is if I can model to my guests that I'm trying to go deeper, that I'm trying to find something in myself that may be challenging to reveal, and I encourage them to do the same, what ends up happening is we don't actually reveal this thing we're holding and saving, oh, maybe I'll reveal that. But the, the excavation process itself is a kind of co-creation of being in the very moment. And the best podcast for me is a situation where we're discovering things about ourselves. So actually in this particular conversation, I feel a little jumbly right now. I feel like I'm like, I would say I'm giving like a seven or eight performance as far as like my actual speaking is concerned. But okay. for me personally, I'm actually getting a lot out of this podcast. I think I'm probably getting the most out of this podcast. Like y'all listening, super cool. I hope you're getting a lot out of it. But I think I'm probably getting more out of it than you are. And the reason being is I'm in a very, I'm in a state with a lot of movement right now. And to have this conversation with you, with this space that you've created, and the way that you're asking your questions, the I, I even just like the dojo image behind you is is helping me. It's like a it's like a positive vibe. Is allowing me to coalesce certain things in real time, and it's not 
it's not that there's a bunch of ideas that are waiting to be discovered in a sense. It's there's a creation that's happening of the synthesis in the context of our conversation. So that's what I'm trying to do as a host. And the way that I do that, so some actual sort of tactics about doing it is that, so first of all, I do a lot of research. So I really want to know what is what are the things that I want to know from this guest? Like, I've done some podcasts where I've chosen the guest based on their identity in some way. This person's famous or this person is going to look a certain way. I've leaned a little too much into that. And I don't do that anymore now. That's an earlier thing. Now I only interview people who I want to talk to. I want to learn something about. And I typically, it's their life. It's life as a festival. And it usually focuses on a particular theme. So I am releasing a podcast today with Sabine Lichtenfeld, who is Lichtenfeld's, Lichtenfeld's, I don't know, Lichtenfeld's, we didn't talk about her last name, who is one of the co-founders of a, a research institute, intentional community healing biotope called Tamara in Southern Portugal. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a free love community. And it's not just polyamorous per se, it's like love free from fear. And so in talking to her, there's things I wanna know about how that community creates the safety in which people can heal the wounds of love. Mm. And I wanna know how we can create that safety outside of community. So there's, I, I really wanna know it. And so I've done my research to get where their thinking is and where they might go with it. And I have a nice roadmap. But then I don't really ask questions. I do occasionally. I don't really ask questions so much as I listen to them and I see where I can bridge something that they've said towards where I want to go. So they'll mm. bring up something about, I don't think I've got something great off the top of my head. No, I don't have anything great off the top of my head. But they'll bring up something and I'll, and I'll, I'll be able to pull from what they've said a segue where I'll be like, so when you said that, this kind of reminds me of this thing over here. And what I find in doing that is that when you ask a question, you're like, okay, this thing. And what about this thing? Then they feel like they're being interviewed. And if they mm. feel like they're being interviewed, then they'll, and especially people who've been interviewed a lot, they'll respond as if they're being interviewed. And they may have some stock answers that they've prepared. So they can go to this kind of safety of, oh, he's asking about the, about whether it's polyamory. Here's my stock answer. But if I use a segue, if I'm listening closely and I can anchor where I want to go into what they already want to talk about, then it is one like moving forward conversation, but it still has the like the scaffolding of of information that I feel that my audience needs to be able to follow their thinking. So I spend mm -hmm. a lot of time planning that. And then when I'm actually doing the podcast, and this is the case I think with most art, because I, I think of the podcast as art, I prepare, I get everything ready, and then I just try to drop into flow with them. And I try to drop into the place where it's, I'm not monitoring too much. Everything is broadly monitored. Everything's, I've got, got my recorder and I know it's not peaking. And I, I, I know the time is, I know where, like, but that's very, peripheral, but I'm actually just with them. And there's a moment where they bring something up and they're like talking about healing 
wounds in masculinity. And I'm like, God, I want to talk about this wound of pornography addiction. Have people come to Tamara to heal this wound because it's a wound that I've had. She mm-hmm. says, oh yes, yeah, many men have come here for this, many men. And it's, I've give, I'm giving a little, I'm giving a little more. And when mm-hmm. I say, I've had this issue with pornography addiction. And then she can say, oh, this is something that we're healing here. I'm like in it with her. The healing that is happening at Tamara is something that is associated with my own life. But I haven't gone too deep into, let me tell you the first time I ever watched pornography or when I stopped watching pornography or how I learned. I, I have to be self-disciplined enough to not do what I'm doing right now because I'm a guest on your show, which is talking a bunch. So it's like, how do I like reveal myself in a co-creative fashion? To but it's all the goal is all to tee them up to go to the next place. So yeah. that's how I do it. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. So for those of you listening, this may be very niche. You may not be a podcast host. You may not even be thinking about it. But what Eamon is illustrating here actually is about the atomic unit of one to one conversation like essentially podcasting is a how to be a great conversationalist in the beginning of my time thinking about it i gotta be a great interviewer barbara walters in a journalistic style then the more i do it and realize actually it's not about being an interviewer or it's not about me teaching my guests it's actually just being a great conversationalist and then that is the foundation skill from my point of view to have relationships with other people what do you think about that? I can say that being a podcaster has made me a way better conversationalist. If I'm at like a, a dinner party or something, I, I'll, my brain will start doing the podcast thing. Like I'll be talking to someone and whereas a younger Eamon, they'll say something and a younger Eamon will immediately be like, oh, that reminds me of something about myself I can share. And if I share this thing about myself that relates to them, then they'll think I'm, they'll think I'm cool and they'll, they'll like me. Not true. Instead, it's, oh, they said that thing. I wonder if they had, hey, hey, do you you have any siblings? And they're like, oh, actually, you know what? Funny you should mention that because actually I'm a middle child. And I was like, I I thought so because you were, and then suddenly I find that I'm doing the podcasting thing. Not, it's still the give and take kind of thing, but I, yeah, it has definitely made me a better conversationalist. And, And I definitely would recommend podcasting as good medicine for self-involved people. Cause I'm absolutely <laughs> my whole life, I've been a self-involved person. And I'm lonely cause I'm staring at my damn self all the time. Cause I got a problem and I got to fix it. And I'm like, oh, this problem and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like looking inward and then feeling lonely. And so in a sense, you're talking about you're healing the world by giving the world what you're lacking. So for me, the podcast is like good medicine for me being self-involved and me being self-involved is part of why I'm so damn lonely. And then the podcast, I don't feel lonely right now. I'm talking to you. We're here. We're having a conversation and we're going deeper together. Now, granted, we are talking a lot about me, but that's the format and it's, it's fine. Like I'm in community and I'm in movement with, with people. Right? No, I think I just lost the train of thought a little bit myself. Okay. Yeah, podcasting is great for self. uh, It's great medicine for self-involved people. That's yes, right into it. And you're welcome to use that as a tagline when you promote this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Podcasting is good medicine for self-involved people. I think 
actually like any in my i'm all about self-actualization and so are you and then there's different path and some of the more obvious path that's, that's made a significant impact in my life would be burning man is a great one plant medicine is a great one on being an entrepreneur is a great one now ashrams are good yeah Get i was on the ashram train and and podcasting actually i didn't even think about podcasting as a path for self-actualization but it actually made me a better listener it made me a better conversationalist it made me less involved because my tendency is here's my shadow hey look how smart i am let me show you some tidbits quote some other random thing that you may not know about and and demonstrate in my frame, the, the, the mindset, the framework about how you can solve your problem. And ta-da, then I hope you'll like me then, right? I hope you see me as impressive then. So being a podcast host is for me to really just like, you know, self-discipline, you know, just do very little of self and just do very much, you know, focus on the guest. Absolutely. You were saying that you prove your value to people by solving their problems. I, I picked up something like that. Like you yeah, demonstrate yeah. that you're smart and you solve the problem. Egoic, the egoic self. Yeah. Wants to yeah. Do so yeah. here's something that I've learned. Nobody wants you to solve their problem. Not really. People want you to listen. They want you to join them in their problem. They don't want to be alone with their problem, but they don't want you to hand them a solution. Because first of all, any solution you hand someone, they probably already thought about it. They probably already explored that solution. And it can feel very patronized to be like, have you, you're depressed, have you tried exercising? And you're like, you motherfucker, of course I've tried exercising, I'm <laughs> depressed. Everybody says that shit to me. Yeah, yeah. But I, I learned about this in doing Zendo. Do you know Zendo? Go Psychedelic peer support? Share okay, it with so, the audience what, 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 yeah. what it is. Uh -huh. So the Zendo project is psychedelic peer support at festivals, which is essentially, it's a safe space. It's a tent at a festival where you can go if you're having a difficult psychedelic experience and someone will sit with you. And they make a big point that your job is to sit, but not guide. And I first worked with the Zendo in 2015 and wrote an article for Fest 300 called I did psychedelic first aid at a festival in Costa Rica. It was my first viral article that I ever wrote. In the second viral article I ever wrote, first viral article I wrote, the one I did before was actually a curation of other things that other people on in the company had written. But anyway, it was 11 alternatives to Burning Man. Psychedelic peer support. So you're not supposed to solve a problem because the point is that the psychedelic medicine itself is allowing their own brain to solve their own problem. So actually anything you do is going to be intervention. So you're really not supposed to do anything because you're not supposed to intervene, but you do need to be present and make them feel that you're with them. So you gently affirm, positively reflect. You don't tell them to breathe, but you breathe slowly. You go get them water. And I've brought that into my life anytime I am wanting to be of service to someone who is in any kind of distress. I very rarely try to solve anyone's problem. And if I do, I will preface it by saying, may I offer a reflection? And what I found is that people like that way more. People like the space to work it out, 
They want somebody to walk with them. I, certainly I do. When I'm grieving, when I'm a mess and someone's like, have you thought of, I'm like, shut up. I don't want to think at all. I just want to grieve and I want you to be here. Anyway, that's something I was thinking about in the, it's, and it, it's, it's a similar thing to me at, at, at the dinner, at the, at the dinner party when I'm like, oh, this person said something. I can make it about myself and then they'll like me. No, I could just ask them more about themselves. So, yeah. So one thing that we, I do want to ask you about your audience those are well connected you know, influencers, they're, you know, entrepreneurs, they're, you know, you have just, they have a lot of respect for you as well. So how, when you go about it, I don't know if it's organic. I don't know if it's intentional. How do you go about cultivating your know, relationship with these group of influencers? So first of all, audience is potentially a useful term because of the way people think about it, but really it's, it's all community. It's community all the way up and all the way down. And my audience is actually my community. And part of how I've cultivated listenership to the podcast of people who are influential themselves are people who I've admired and connected with over time. And then most of the podcast is really word of mouth. I do a little bit of social media spending to push it out a bit more, to get more people to see it who would, who've already expressed interest. But I am blessed, not blessed, that's the wrong word. I have cultivated a, a, a pretty stellar global network because a lot of my work has been helping people connect with each other. And I'll tell you a quick story because it's really relevant to this. It's from the show Parks and Recreation. Did you ever watch the show Parks and Recreation? I know of it. I don't watch okay. that. Aziz Ansari. So the main character, Leslie Nope, is this super like sunny, bright character. And Ron Swanson is her curmudgeonly boss. And on this particular episode, they need a, they're trying to throw a harvest festival. And they need the police to monitor it for free. Or they won't have enough money to be able to throw it. The police chief owes Leslie Nope a favor. And, and so they need to ask the police chief to do the Harvest Festival, and that's the favor to Leslie Nope. But what ends up happening is that Ron Swanson ends up going to jail, and it's not really his fault. He like punched someone in the face who deserved it, but he ends up going to jail. Mm -hmm. And so uh, this is a bit of a long story, but we're getting there. Leslie's, Leslie tells her boyfriend, to ask the police chief as her favor. No, oh, pardon me, no, that's not how it goes out. Leslie uses her favor to get Ron Swanson out of jail. And so that's the one favor. And so the Harvest Festival can't happen. So then Leslie's boyfriend sheepishly goes to the, goes to the police chief and says, look, I know that Leslie used her one favor to get Ron Swanson out of jail but we can't throw the harvest festival without your help. Would you please consider helping us? And the police chief says, of course, no problem. This guy's like, wait, what? No, you, but you don't know us if you don't know us a favor. And he's like, Leslie gets as many favors as she wants. And he's like, oh, why is that? And he says, cause she always uses her favors for other people. Mm. And I remember when I watched that, it was very aspirational for me. I was like, I want to be that way. 
I want to be the person who people do things for, because when I ask for things, they're for other people. Mm. And when I was doing Fest 300, the strategy was a kind of conspicuous generosity, where it was basically, and granted, there's a privilege piece of this too, which is the website was privileged by the fact that we had Chip Conley as our patron. Chip Conley, very successful um, hotelier, the guy who took Airbnb Global, now doing the Modern Elder, Modern Elder Academy, most important mentor of my life. Oh, no, I've got a spiritual mentor now who's really close in the running, but a very important mentor in my life. And so he funded it. And so we had a lot of resources. And when you have more resources, it's easier to create abundance for other people. And that's a really important note because a lot of people talk about abundance, create abundance. You really need to acknowledge that there's privilege that's part of abundance and it's shitty not to acknowledge it. And we can talk a little bit more about that in my personal life as well. But essentially what we did with Fest 300 was like, okay, you're a great photographer. We're going to you know, get you a gig doing photography. You're a DJ and we're going to connect you to this booking person. The booking person is trying to book artists to come through Australia. There's another festival that's happening in Thailand around the same time. Maybe they can co coordinate so they can bring in a bigger artist together. So like always, hey, would you talk to this person because they need this thing? Hey, would you do this for that person because they need this? And or, and can you help me with this because I'm trying to help someone else? And the whole time I was doing Fest 300, like that's how I did the network building thing was, mm. and Chip has a great way of defining this. He says like, you have an emotional bank account in all your relationships. You never withdraw from it. You just invest in it and then you live off the dividends, basically. I don't mm. know if he would say the live off the dividends part, but I think that's really how it works. But basically you, you're always investing you're always putting more in. And so like my relationship with Chip, for example, I don't ask Chip for stuff, even though he's super influential and can do a lot of things. I ask him, I'm, I'm very precise about when I ask him for things. Like for example, I asked him to be on the podcast, but I, I think about what I can give him and I think about what I can give other people. And I've found that by cultivating that over time, now when I need things, I don't even really need to ask for them a lot of the time. They just are happening more and more for me. And again, there's a privilege piece of that. Like it's not available. If you're broke and you're starting out in the world and someone's like, just give everybody everything, that's a kind of a shitty thing to say. You need to have a kind of like baseline ability to function and be able to create that abundance. But once you do, you can start creating the energy of gifting and abundance. And when you are creating more abundance around you, the type of people who want to be around you are the type of people who are also creating abundance. This happens so much in the Burning Man community, which also has its own privilege issue. But there's a sort of, well, we're, it's a gifting culture. So let me just give this to you. And I'll just give, being in an environment where there's a constant sort of flow of generosity levels it up for everybody else. And so to come back to your question, which is why do I think that influential people listen to my podcast? I think it's because I think it's an interesting podcast for one thing. I just think it's, I personally am interested in it. So I'm always doing something interesting to me. And so it's interesting to certain people. So there's the baseline quality is there, but it's also the people who it has already reached are people who I've already connected with over time by building this kind of global network of helping people help each other so that when the podcast comes out and the podcast isn't ad supported and it's, it's a gift and it is given in a gesture of goodwill. It, uh, it gets 
people like it. And then the last thing I'll say is that in terms of abundance, I try to like keep the vibe of abundance going. So I actually have a policy where if there is a podcaster who asks me, and I'll tell them too that they can't ask me, I don't just, I give a free hour coaching session to podcasters as a way of giving back for the success of my work. So if I meet someone who I'm we're having a conversation and they want to launch a podcast or the podcast will be like, I'll give you an hour of coaching. And it's a kind of, it's like a pay it forward kind of abundance thing where it's like, I don't, it doesn't matter if that person does anything for me. It's not strategic in that way. It's just, like, it's, it, it's an ineffable quality of abundance that something else comes in and then you get supported in another way. You're, you're creating a vibe where there's just more abundance around you. And I'd say that is, I'd say that my success in everything is based on that, on that like orientation. I love that. Thank you so sh for sharing that. Abundance mindset, help other, help people, help other people by helping other people. And when you do your ask, ask on behalf of other people. But that's a, I actually got chills when you share that specific story. Yeah, because the, right. the Leslie Nope story. Yeah, yeah, because most people ah, they yes. ask favors, they ask for for themselves. If you think about the best people that I know, they typically are very much, hey, how can I ask you to help other people? So, so thanks for sharing that. And one thing, I, one comment I want to make about too for for anyone who's starting. Uh, Sure, money is a currency, relationship is a currency, introduction is a currency, but I also don't forget, you have an infinite a currency of creativity, your own creativity. But James Altucher, one of my, another respected interviewer, he's amazing. How he started his career was by just generally giving people ideas. So like 10 ideas a day, every day, and just say, hey, here's something that's gonna help your podcast, Eamon do whatever you want with it he's not attached to what people do with so that's another currency that you people could use as well you want to well, yeah, and in for people starting out like my start was through volunteering for the burning man special events team like volunteering your time and but taking it seriously and not acting like this is a volunteer thing i'm doing on the side i'm not going to go today i don't need to but acting like it's acting like it's the job that you want until it is. And for me, I was doing uh, social media marketing for the Burning Man special events team. And then I was like, totally like blowing up the numbers of these off-fly events, like decompression, these street fairs and that sort of thing. So all these other producers in San Francisco were like, got wind of me. I was like, who's this guy? And then people started hiring me. And, you know, I, I think, I, yeah. I'm very wary of the privilege thing. And, and because of that, sometimes I can equate all of this generosity, abundance and giving to money because I get nervous about the idea that someone without money would, but really you can create an environment of abundance by giving all sorts of things. You don't have to give money. You don't have to have money. But I think when we are talking about material possessions, it's good to be aware of privilege. Do you want to talk about that a bit? Because you brought that up uh, a couple of Yeah, so it's for the listener, CK and I had a chat before this this conversation where I said that I wanted to talk about privilege. I am planning to have 
I think that it is very important in this sort of like Burning Man community, young entrepreneur community. There's a lot of stories of success that are being publicly presented. And you look on Instagram and people at cool sunrise parties in far off places and someone's like, I'm an entrepreneur and I'm like, I'm doing this thing. And, and, and the assumption is that everyone that you see is a self-made person that are, especially with this kind of entrepreneurial narrative. And I think it's really important that we do a better job of owning the extra help that we get. And we're taught not to do that. It's gauche to talk about your ways that you might've gotten extra help. But I think that it's important that we do more of that. And it's something that I'd like to do more of. And so when we were talking about doing this podcast and we were talking about entrepreneurship and abundance, I, I feel like it's incumbent upon me to mention that I have had extra help. So it's not like I'm creating abundance out of nothing and that's my success. My grandmother recently departed. She died at 99 years old last year set up education funds for each myself and each of my two brothers and my father a successful stockbroker managed to make that more than it was supposed to be so it was supposed to pay for college it ended up being a couple hundred thousand dollars more than paying for college so i exited college with a couple hundred thousand dollars and that wasn't the intention it was when i don't really i don't feel like a trust fund kid and i don't like that title an accidental kind of thing. But I had that extra boost. And that extra boost gave me a lot of space to deal with difficult mental health issues, gave me a lot of space to explore creativity, gave me space to do things on my own terms. Now, granted, I think in some ways, maybe held me back. Maybe if I had to fight harder right out of college, I would have found ways to get through certain limitations. And maybe I would have been on a different life track. It doesn't really matter. I'm on the life track that I'm on. But I think that it's important when we're talking about abundance and talking about this cool lifestyle and that sort of thing that I, I, I don't live off of that money. Now I I've made money in my life and I've, there's different ways that my, I've had a relationship with money, but I think that it's important to name that I've had a little extra help. And so the life that I live and what I've been able to create has had a boost. And to say nothing of the boost of being a white male in, you know, the context of America at this time. That's an enormous boost itself. I don't think that privilege is something that we need to hate ourselves for or really be ashamed about. But I think it's the type of thing where it's like it should lead to more giving back. And it should also lead to it needs to be acknowledged more so that people aren't looking at lifestyles on Instagram and being like, oh, I guess I'm just not trying hard enough or I'm not good enough that I don't have that. Most of the shit that you see on Instagram is like people getting help in different ways. People have legs up, a leg up that they're, not, that they're not speaking to. And I think that I'd like us to speak to more of that in the Burning Man community and acknowledge that more. So this is the first time that I've really opened that up. I think I talked to maybe alluded to it on the podcast with Tim Chang, but I think it's something that needs to be part of our conversation. Yeah, thanks for being open and about the privilege aspect of it. And from my point of view, here's the thing, Eamon. It's, I can't remember who said this quote. He says, it's not about equal, you know, being equal. It's about having equal access to opportunities. 
right? So you have had a leg up, but from my point of view, you're actively creating opportunities for others that you can access. You know what I mean? So it's not, as you said, it's not, hey, you had some privilege and so do a lot of other people. But what you're doing is you're actually doing the work by providing equal access to a lot of new opportunities by making introductions, by being on other people's shows, by donating your time, teaching them how to, you know, do their podcast. So in my mind, you're already doing that. Thank you. And I think that I may have a bit of a, you know, a limitation in that itself. Of Like we were talking earlier on the show about how I don't think of myself as an entrepreneur. And I think that part of that is I don't, I'm not an entrepreneur. Like I've had a little extra help. So I'm giving more back. Like I, I'm, I don't, I don't, so I think it's really what it comes down to is as we move through our lives, let me start again. As I move through my life, my primary goal is to release limitations and to expand potential for myself and those around me. That's all. So the limitation of, oh, I don't like money. I don't deserve money. The limitation of, oh, I need money. I got to grab it. Whatever I can do to clean my vessel, to have a more expansive experience of living and be able to share, that's what I want to do. And, and again, and also to just have no regrets, be like, okay, I'm as evolved as I am right now, because this is as far as I've gotten, who knows what I'll be like in a couple of years, maybe at some point I will have an incredible entrepreneurial hunger and I'll build an empire of multiple podcasts and I'll help all sorts of young podcasters get a head start. Maybe that'll be a future. But I think that the whole name of the game is to release our limitations. And so I think part of why I want to acknowledge having some extra support too is if you're listening and you didn't get extra support and you're comparing yourself to other people, people get a lot of help. So don't, I don't want to say don't compare yourself to other people because I don't want to tell anybody what to do, but like you're, you have the gold you have. And you'll find your way to give that to the world. So that seems actually, a little pithy. Let's actually, yeah, let's actually talk about that a bit. The self-esteem roller coaster, right? Hey, if I succeed, I'm the king. If I fail, I'm worse than dirt, right? That's very similar. Really, that's a human challenge, but entrepreneurs specifically, because I do, that's my community, right? So I talk to a lot of them and that's the roller coaster, right? So since you've done a lot of different transformative experiences, that's your jam, that's my jam. So let's, let's geek out about those things a bit. Can you recall a time where you were in a dark and empty soul moment where you're like, shit, this is, I need some help. So can you go back to that moment? Then, can we, then we can talk about some of the tools that you have come across to really help you get out of those dark moments. I mean... Friday, <laughs> or do you want to go back? You want to go back far? I'm just, I was just having a spiritual crisis in an ashram for the past week. It's pretty fresh. Um, okay, I'm good. always in those. I'm I'm always doing those. I'm like I, I definitely feel like I've got some of the tonality of uh, uh, bipolar in my landscape. I don't. I'm not saying I'm bipolar, but I have those a lot. But I think that what would be most helpful would be to go a ways back and to the time of my second major depressive episode in my life. I've had three 
big ones. And my second one, I was living in Oakland and all I did all day, I worked at Borders Bookstore and I drank alcohol and I smoked pot and I played World of Warcraft and I played guitar. And that's the, that's all I did for a year. And I was like, would have been suicidal if I, you know, wasn't terrified of how much pain it would cause those around me. I was like very in a very dark place and a place from which I, you know, really scrape in the bottom of the barrel and, and ridiculously. Because bottom of the barrel, what does that mean? Just, I have this idea in my mind of like a wine barrel and there's this sort of like gummy gritty stuff down at the bottom like I was the gummy gritty down at the bottom of the barrel and just what I was I literally would like eat spaghetti with cheese on it and drink Newcastle beers every night by myself like it was just like and now that I know what happens with your gut I'm like oh no <laughs> that was not helping the depression but yeah pretty severe depression at that point. <clears throat> and so I'd say that was when I was like 24, 25. So what, what helped you get out of those dark moments? Life is a magical adventure. And I also think that life itself is something that you're in a dance with. Like you get stuck and it pokes you out. And I feel like I'm, the lived experience is a reciprocal one. And so for me, it was a collection of, of a couple of different things that happened at once. I went to the Amazon with my mom and this is before I knew about plant medicine at all, but I met a shaman who did like a tobacco clearing. No, it didn't take any plant medicine or anything, just shaman blue smoke in my face. And I didn't know anything about it. It was like, we were a bunch of just tourists. And they asked if there was a volunteer who wanted to come up to do like a traditional shaman blessing, like super, you know, white tourist shit. But I, I, I attribute that as something. I discovered an amino acid supplement that was not an antidepressant, but that actually really helped it really helped my methylation cycle, which affect my brain affected my brain chemistry. It's called SAME, S-A-M-E, or capital S-A-M with lowercase e. And that was that kind of gave me, I feel like it assisted the neurochemistry. And then the biggest one that happened at that time, and it happened just spontaneously, was I had this kind of realization that I had been blaming my father and his mistakes during my childhood for the life I was living. And I was living a life that was very lame to punish him. Mm. Basically, see, you ruined me mm. because you hurt me when I was a little boy. And so this is the only life I'm capable of. Mm. And I hadn't known, I didn't know that I was doing that, but I was totally doing that. I was just like, it's already too late for me. <laughs> And I checked that, like I stopped and I was like, wait, I've got, I've got this extra money. I graduated from a good school. I'm, what do I want? If, I, if, if my life weren't dictated by the story of the wounding of my father, if that wasn't my life, what would my life be? Well, I guess I would get to author it myself. I guess I would get to decide myself what I want my life to be. And so at the time I went to a party 
on Haight Street in San Francisco and there was a band playing and they had a record player. And I was like, you know what? I want to live on Haight Street and I want to have a band and I want to have a record player. And so I was like, okay, why don't I just do that? And it was interesting how I was like, that was really the big switch for me was if I stop blaming, if I stop living this life, that's a sort of blame punishment thing. What do I want? And what does it look like if I start going after what I want? And as I started going after what I want, it, it enacted a sort of chain reaction of not the kind of compulsive, oh, I want to eat a chocolate, but the sort of what is my, getting more in touch with the desire that moves me through the world. So I want a record player because that seems cool. And I want to listen to records and, and I want to start a band. And it was the band that turned into the community that took me to Burning Man, which led to the gig with Burning Man, which led to the gigs with other producers, which led to Fest 300, which, you know, on. and so it was like, so for someone who's listening, who is like in one of those stuck places, tap into your desire and see is there something that you can go for? Is there something that is beyond the amelioration of negative feelings? That is like something to really go for that isn't just like I'm miserable and I wish I weren't. Ah, this I'm miserable. So horrible. So quick question. So there is that epiphany moment. There is that insight. Hey, I would like to live on Hate Street. No, before that, hey, I was blaming my father, so I'm living this way. Then there's desire. Hey, I wanted to live on at Hate Street and play in a band or so forth. So that's an insight, right? Or two insights. How do you go from insight to shift a way of being? Because let's say a lot of people have desire, but then there's resistance that's blocking them to making that shift of being. Does that make sense? Can you zoom in even more on how you were able to shift going from insight to actually taking action to moving to history. I know how I do that now. I know how I cultivate that now because I've learned how to do it and I do it quite intentionally. Then I think it was honestly, I think it was grace. I think it was less like now it's have the revelation, anchor it, turn it into a practice come out of your ayahuasca ceremony and do wake up early, meditate and do yoga a little bit of every day, cultivate your integration. Like I know that now, but I didn't know that then. I think it was just like taking the leap and saying at the time I was living in Oakland and I was like, okay, I want to move to San Francisco. I'm going to move to hate street. So I'm going to try to do that. And there's a great Terrence McKenna quote about nature loves courage and I don't have the whole thing memorized, but essentially it says like nature loves courage. Act from, oh God, I wish I had it. When we're live, see, this is the thing, this is why I don't like to do them live. <laughs> now I just, I've got something beautiful for you, but I don't remember. I can Google it. it. I can Google it. Just tell me the keywords. Just Terrence McKenna, nature loves courage. But the point being is it was, it was a combination of going for it and just the grace. I think maybe it's like before you learn how to anchor transformative experiences into your life through wise integrative practices, it's really courage and grace. It's really just leaping into the abyss. And this is the end of it. Okay. Nature loves courage. 
you make the commitment and nature will respond to that commitment by removing the impossible obstacles. Dream the impossible dream and the world will not grind you under. It will lift you up. This is the trick. This is what all these teachers and philosophers who really counted, who really touched the alchemical gold, this is what they understood. This is the shamanic dance in the waterfall. This is how magic is made by hurling yourself into the abyss and discovering it's a feather bed. Thank you. No, it's beautifully said. Man, I can talk to you for hours. Do you mind doing a little bit of rapid fire questions? Because I know that you have a 11. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was, I was about to say, I can talk to you for hours. I could talk to you for hours, but I don't know that I could be smart and podcast for hours because you know <laughs> I am a little I'm, I am a little worn out from all this spiritual effort I've been doing for the past week and I've, it's occurred to me that I'm just like not feeling like witty like I had some moments in the podcast where I was feeling like sharp and witty and right now I'm just like jump okay. into the abyss and get <laughs> in the bed but yeah let's rapid fire with the caveat that I make no claims to any profundity great wonderful that's the best, right? Just go with flow, man. So who you are. Yeah, let's do, maybe we do it like really rapid fire. Like I'll just say something and maybe right. it'll be garbage. Okay. Let's do this. What's an unusual habit or observed thing that you love? I definitely didn't do that quickly at all. An unusual <laughs> habit or an absurd thing that I love. I like to sexy dance like a girl when I'm by myself. Whoa, I like that. Yeah, I like to just be like super like feminine, like something I would never do for anybody else. I like to do it for myself and be like, oh, you can do anything you want. Like all of my adolescent fear of being thought of as gay, I like just released by just having a sexy kind of dance that I do for myself on my own. I like that, awesome. What's one of the best or most, most worthwhile investment you've ever made? It'd be investment money, time, money, energy, relationships, etc. Okay. When I was at Fest 300, I did something great. I it was my first viral article. And Chip came to me and he said, look, we only do raises once a year, but you just knocked it out of the park and I want to reward you. So I want you to think of something to ask me for and ask me for something and I'll give it to you. And I'm sure he thought I would ask for like a vacation or get to be to get to be sent to a really cool festival. But what I said to him is when you first hired me as a social media manager, you told me that I should find a social media manager I admire and take them out to lunch once a month so that I could grow into a better social media manager. But the thing is I don't want to be a social media manager. I want to be you. So I'm wondering if as the thing that I ask you for, can I take you out to lunch once a month and learn to be more like you? And he was like, wow, that's a really great answer. And that was the beginning of Chip's mentorship of me. And he mentored me for four years. And wow. that, that investment of him saying, you can ask for something you want was like the best thing I've ever asked for in my life because that paid, I learned so much from him and it was such an incredible, it has been such an incredible relationship. You can't just open that loop. Let's. I want to go into it, so it's not going to be a rapid fire question. But you what, said rapid fire. You uh, said rapid okay, fire. fine. Okay, fine. What are the three things, top things that you learned from Chip Conley? 
on the four year of mentorship. <laughs> the emotional bank account thing. Yeah. How to manage someone by it's a bit of an artistic thing, so it's hard to just easily break it down, but how to manage someone by making them feel amazing about themselves and yet encouraging them to stretch further. So like Chip has this mentor, this management skill where you just feel totally loved, totally accepted, and yet you can and want to do more. And it's something that I, when I manage people, I, I try to cultivate that with them. So that was really valuable. Well, and, and then- how, how do you do that? <laughs> well, you, first of all, you love them. You uh -huh. like, you should always, I, I would not manage someone that I didn't love, that I didn't want. I want them to succeed. I want them to be their best selves. So I'm managing someone right now at Maya. Her name is Lisa and she is a total rock star, like MVP on the team. She doesn't need a manager to tell her to work harder or to set her more goals. Actually, what she needs is someone to tell her to chill out and help her balance her work life relationship. So that's what I do. And because I do that, and because I have this sort of, she like, she stretch, the thing is she stretches herself because she's in a safe, like relation, like employment relationship. And she said to me that this is the best work, like best employment relationship she's ever had because she wants to stretch, she wants to succeed, but she doesn't feel like it's being like pulled out of her. Like you don't pull a rose to make it grow. Now I'm lucky because I'm managing a total rock star and I've only ever managed rock stars. Actually. I don't think I've never managed someone who has felt like a difficult person to manage. Okay. Three things that Chip taught me. Number three, just joie de vie, which is the name of Chip's hotel company. But like Chip has a joy to life and his joy to life is really infectious. And it's really he, all of his like business acumen is imbued with this incredible joy and it's easy to get caught up in oh it's not gonna work out like grab too tight uh, but chip's been through many different crises financial and otherwise and he keeps his joy and i think his joy is probably his most profound leadership tool did, uh, did he teach you a particular discipline or cultivation uh, as a way to cultivate that draw to be not really he just models it. I think that the value of a good mentor is really modeling. And also what I think the number one value of a good mentor is that they show you that you are worth the time of someone who you admire. And in doing so, they show you that you can be like them. So like the fact that Chip has put so much into me and into our relationship has shown me that someone of that level of success believes in me. And it allows me to believe more deeply in myself. So it, he, he definitely gave me suggestions about how to do certain things at certain times, but I don't really remember any of it. I think I wove it into my like way of doing things. But I, when I think of what he gave me, his presence and his love and his sort of modeling leadership is what I really think of. Mm. You got to go back to rapid fire because you can't just do yep, yep. the whole time. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> A quick response and rapid fire. A quick response. When we look for mentors, teachers, gurus, for me, it used to be about the content they give. Then I really, then I had you know, my spiritual awakening. Then I really appreciate now it's more of an energetic transmission. 
and it's less about 100%. content. So it's the way of being, the, the, the way they live their life, how they are beyond just the coaching sessions, how they live their life, so forth. So. Yeah, and, and also, I don't, content isn't even really that valuable to me because I can't remember anything anyway. And most things I can just go find. So if someone told me like, this is a great like business technique, I'd be like, okay, but how does it feel? If it feel, if it's like the management thing. And, and part of why it's hard to answer it is because to me, it's, to me, it's art. To me, it's like the way that I manage, the way that I manage people in work, it's, it's art. It's about them. It's about what I see in them and about how to cultivate their best. So in the case of Lisa, for example, it's actually about letting her know that like I have her broader interest in mind and that we're, when we're talking about a project, she can trust me to help her prioritize it in the right way so that she can achieve it in the way that really works rather than by pushing hard, lifting heavy and ultimately burning out. Yeah. Last question. What? What's the books or resources that you would point people to if they want to learn more about the art of conversation, the art of relationship building, the art of community building? Mm. I got a lot of books that I love, and most of them are about one's relationship with oneself. Mm. If I, if you ask me books to, that you would recommend, it's also aligns a little bit with the content thing. I don't really know of books that tell you how to be a good community builder, but I do know of books that have widened the possibility of my being and have therefore made me better at many things. I just recently finished Anthony DeMello's Way to Love, which is something that I'm using to help me get off the external validation train, which I think will ultimately make me better at everything that I do. I'm also rereading Pema Chodron's When Things Fall Apart, give you a little perspective of where my my mind has been finite and infinite games which i mentioned earlier i love getting shit done if you're trying to get shit done the war of art is a wonderful thing about a wonderful book about the creative process mm, what else letters to a young poet by rilke is another great one in terms of getting going and getting things done i Have wonder I, if there's a book about a collection of Hephaestus work. Oh yeah, yeah. So Hafi, I, I always travel with the gift, which is a lovely translation of Hafiz poetry, and Hafiz is just so remarkable, wonderful Sufi poet. Yeah, there's a lot of really great books out there. I don't know that I do any reading about community building. Do you know any books about community building that are like, oh yeah, that's the book? Great question. Not really. Yeah, I don't really know one. Maybe that needs to be written, but as we talked about earlier on the podcast, I don't want to write a book. <laughs> I'll just do a podcast about it. Well, uh, it, it, well it, here, here's the suggestion. Not necessarily you authoring the thing. You can do like a, a tribal mentor. Like a ghost, right? No, no, a tribal mentors type thing where you basically oh, yeah. pull out bits and pieces from everyone that you, that you interview about it. Tribe of Mentors is, was the move. That was the move. Tim knows what's up, man. Tim's so good at what he does. He's definitely been uh, a big role model of mine in this space. But yeah, I think at some point I'll, I'll at some point I'll produce a life as a festival something that sort of 
is the accumulate. And I, I journal every day. So I have like tons and tons of writing. So it, it may be at some point that writing may be useful. But right now I, I need to crack the I need to crack the code of being sitting alone with myself long enough to actually put the heavy work into a book. And in spite of all of the Vipassana and Iboga and all the different things I do, I still I still get pretty restless and cagey when I am alone. And that's my work. And that's the work that this season is for. So maybe we can check in the spring and maybe we'll be like, you know what? I can write a book now because yeah. I have a better relationship to this. Well, Eamon, just want to take a moment to really acknowledge you for being here, especially after the spiritual transformational experience. And thank you just for the willingness to be open to step into the unknown, to dance with me in this conversation. We talk about a lot of different topics from sitting with that discomfort to community building, we can zoom in and out of it. So really just appreciate for you more than the content, but just how you're showing up and how you're leaning to that discomfort of you know, revealing something that you may feel a little bit uncomfortable with, but you courageously step into the fire anyway. So thank you for just being a tremendous example of, of your path, your work. Thank you. And I want to say one quick thing about courage and vulnerability. Openness isn't the same as courageous vulnerability. If you know that you are going to be rewarded for what you say, even if what you say is very appears very vulnerable, it's actually not vulnerable. And this is the thing about performative vulnerability that I've noticed. For me, saying publicly that I had extra money when I left college, that's vulnerable for me. Because I don't think that's something that people are going to say, oh, he's great for that. I, I like that he has. I, I think it's more the opposite. Oh, huh. You had some extra money. No wonder like, you're one of those guys. Just something to come back to the very beginning of the conversation to talk about courage and vulnerability. Openness isn't the same as courageous vulnerability. And I think that we do grow when we are more courageous. And actually, when we're more courageous and more vulnerable in a real way, we actually can really support people around us and set the tone for certain things. So whether or not you, dear listener, find yourself a bit annoyed that I loathe the term trust fund, but had some of that extra, I feel good about having said it, even though it makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. Some of the, the most poignant moments of this podcast is actually exactly as you said, when people share about their darkest moments, when they're actually literally staring on down the barrel of a gun and decided whether or not to pull the trigger. Those are the moments where people write back to us and say, hey, we actually, I actually thought about doing this. And thanks to the courageous vulnerability of this guest share, I decided to choose otherwise. So that actually mm. made us feel very worthwhile. We actually literally save a life. So thank you so much mm. for just being open and, and be willing to do that. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And I appreciate you reaching out and inviting me. And I feel very seen and it helps me um, think of myself more as an entrepreneur and think of life as a festival as more of an entrepreneurial venture, which of course it is. So I appreciate that reflection and I appreciate being on your program. 
Beautiful. I definitely wanted to talk to you more about psychedelics, but we'll save until part two. Oh yeah, we didn't do any psychedelics. I've been, I've been talking about psychedelics so much over the Not past since I started doing my. It's all psychedelics, so I'm actually I appreciate that we didn't do psychedelics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all right, man. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. Cheers.